Good morning, church. Um, I'll be reading this morning's passage of scripture. Um, if you'll turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 19, we'll be reading verses 28 to 42. If you have one of the Pew Bibles, um, it's found on page 906. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other one who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who has borne witness he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Will you join me in prayer? Lord, we thank you that we can gather um, before you to hear your word. Um, we ask that you would please help us um, now to um, come with humble hearts, um, that we were, would receive from you would you give us readiness of, of uh, spirit, um, soundness of mind, um, that we may receive your word. Um, we pray that you would be with Pastor Larry as he would speak, um, that you would give him boldness as he ought to speak. Um, we pray that your spirit would be at work in us, um, that you would encourage us, uh, build us up. Uh, would you help us, God, to see the glory of your son um, and be conformed to him by your word. We also this in your name. Amen. Uh, this coming Friday, uh, it's, it's going to happen again. Some unsuspecting people in my neighborhood will do what they do pretty much every Friday of the year. They're going to put their garbage out to the curb. 
for the weekly trash collection. Uh, only this Friday, this coming Friday, their trash will not be picked up. Uh, their mailboxes will remain empty. And I, I trust that some of them, at some point in the day, might pause and wonder, what, what, what is going on? Why, why wasn't my trash picked up today? And then there will be that moment of recollection. Oh, oh, right. It's Good Friday. And that little aha moment will be, for many people, uh, the only moment of reflection, barely a passing thought, uh, probably not even a conscious thought, really, of, of what this passage in John's Gospel that Kyle just read to us depicts, and that is that Jesus died. That's, that's where our text this morning takes us as we continue on in our study of John's gospel. Attention is drawn. You see it as the, the chapter concludes. Attention is being drawn to a corpse, a lifeless, dead body. And then the, the hasty preparations that are made for the burial of that corpse after uh, before the sun would set, which would usher in the Sabbath and the cessation of all work. So they were in a bit of a rush to get the body buried before the Sabbath began. But it, it wasn't just any corpse being laid to rest in the city of Jerusalem. This was, this was no ordinary man who had died. And, and that's a reality that is just even subtly embedded still into our nation's consciousness, even in the simple fact that your trash, if you get picked up on Friday, your trash isn't going to be picked up this Friday. And your mailbox is going to be remaining empty on this Friday. Why? Because around 2,000 years ago, approximately 6,000 miles, little less than 6,000 miles from here, one man, Jesus, died. It was an amazing death. Jesus died. Now, we're, we're in a Christian church, and so this, this is just the air that we breathe. Jesus died. Jesus died for our sins. Uh, and it, it's rightly, in a sense, the air that we breathe because the Apostle Paul tells us that the gospel, this message that Jesus was crucified for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was raised according to the scriptures, it is the message of first importance. So it should be, in a sense, the air that we breathe. And yet... I think it's a part of that, that fallen nature that still resides in us, that the fact that it is the air that we breathe can cause us to be numbed, can cause us to be dulled and, and forgetful of the glory of the, as we, we sang earlier in the service, the wonder of this mystery that Jesus died. It wasn't just that Jesus died. 
this passage in particular in John 19 especially impresses upon us that the death of Jesus was a fulfilling death. It was a fulfilling death. And it was a death, therefore, that demands a response. And that's, those are really the two observations that I want to draw out from this passage for us to consider together. It's not the reality that he died. We could consider that. I thought about spending about 15 minutes just telling you about Jesus and all that we'd already seen of him in the Gospel of John. That we might marvel at something of the reality of what it means that this Jesus in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Nothing was made apart from Him. In Him was life. That Word, okay, I was going to do that for like 10 minutes, but that was like 10 seconds, to just consider that Jesus died. But we want to think specifically about what this passage does teach us, and that is, I believe, that the death of Jesus was a fulfilling death, and therefore, because it was a fulfilling death, it is a death that demands a response. When I say that the death of Jesus was a fulfilling death, I don't mean that the way our world today typically uses the word fulfilling, right? Not, I don't mean, I'm not just saying that it's something that brings about satisfaction or, or happiness, though that is true, isn't it? The death of Jesus does bring a satisfaction and a gladness to the souls of repentant sinners that no eye has seen and no ear has heard and no mind has imagined. But I don't actually mean that. That's not really what the word fulfill is being used to describe here in the passage. I mean what it says right here in the passage, right at the beginning of the passage and then in the middle of the passage that the death of Jesus it fulfilled, it accomplished, it completed the sovereign purposes of God that were recorded and preserved in the scriptures. The death of Jesus was a death that played out exactly as the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, had determined it to be even before the creation of the world. And so you may, maybe you remember the way the apostles prayed in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4, when the, when the apostles prayed, truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The death of Jesus was a fulfilling death in that it fulfilled the sovereign purposes predestined to take place in Jesus' life and death. And so John tells us right at the beginning of our passage, look again at verse 28. After this, after the sufferings that he'd already endured, we've been walking through those verses in John 18 and John 19, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished. Who's in charge here? It doesn't look, if you're just looking, if you're just a bystander looking at that hill of Calvary on that day, it sure didn't seem like Jesus was in charge. But what does John tell us Jesus 
knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Nothing is being left to chance here. Even the agonies, even the anguish of death, even this thirst is a scripture-fulfilling thirst. You can read about that in Psalm 69, verse 21. And that, that sour wine that was given him maybe just unparched his throat just enough for him to be able to cry out in triumph with his last breath, it is finished. Because Jesus knew all was now finished, he cried out, it is finished. So today is known as Palm Sunday. Did you know that? I hadn't said a word about that yet today. I actually wasn't thinking I was going to say anything about it. But if, you're, if you follow the church, today's Palm Sunday. And what is Palm Sunday about? Palm Sunday is about the, the entry of Jesus triumphantly as a king into the city of Jerusalem, where he was hailed as Israel's long-awaited messianic king. And what you can see here in the death of Jesus is that Jesus is reigning as king even at his dying hour. Not just on Palm Sunday is he reigning as king and he's hailed as king, but even hanging on the cross, he is king. He was a victim here. A horrible, outrageous injustice is being done here, but Jesus was not merely a victim. He had voluntarily, freely chosen this for his destiny. You remember earlier in John's gospel, Jesus had said it this way, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. Not Herod, not Pilate, not the savage Roman soldiers, not the malicious Jews plotting against him. No one takes it from me, Jesus said, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And we see there in verse 30, after crying out, it is finished. How does John word it? Jesus bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. He gave up his spirit. Jesus is in charge of even the moment when he would give his spirit to the Father, when he would die. Jesus yielded up his own life in fulfillment of God's sovereign decree. This was the work that the Father had given him to do. And so at the beginning of John 17, that that great high priestly prayer where Jesus prayed right on the cusp of knowing all the agonies that were coming to him, he prayed in John 17 knowing that that hour, the hour of his betrayal and suffering and death was upon him. He said, I glorified you on earth, Father, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He said earlier at the beginning of the gospel in John chapter 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish, to accomplish his work. And what was the Father's will? It was that Jesus would lay down his life as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. For all who believe from every tribe and tongue and nation and language. That was the Father's will. That's what he came to accomplish. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's what he came to do. That's what he is doing. That's what he is accomplishing or fulfilling and that's why he cries out on the cross, it is finished. The wages of sin is death and Christ had come to take those wages, to pay in full, right? We, we sang that, we could have sung like 15 songs. I had, I had a long list of songs prepared for this service. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. He took the payment for the sins of his people to bring purification for, for sins. That's why he shed his blood. That's why he thirsted on the cross. Why he freely took upon himself the shame and the agony of crucifixion. As the writer of Hebrews put it, he appeared, Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It was being fulfilled. It was a fulfilling death. And even after he had given up his spirit, even after the sin-bearing death had been finished, the scriptures just kept on being fulfilled. So you see there in verse 31, let me just read verse 31 again to us. Since it was the day of preparation, it was the day of preparation. That seems like a small detail, but that's a reference to the, the, the day before the Sabbath during the Passover feast. So there was to be no work done on the Sabbath. I mentioned that earlier. That's why they were in a bit of a rush to get the body of Jesus buried but the, the, the Sabbath during Passover week was a particularly special day. That's, we're told right there in verse 31 that Sabbath was a high day. And so this, this presented a problem. Because the, the normal Roman practice was to leave crucified men and women on the cross until they died. And that could actually take days. And you heard, Jason talked about it in some detail last week about the horrors of crucifixion and what was involved just physically from that. I mean, this was the most cruel form of torture that had ever been devised by man. It was, it was intended to prolong the life of the victim for days. And then after even the body was dead, they would tend, the Romans would tend to leave those rotting bodies hanging there on the cross to be devoured by vultures. It was intended to bring about shame and fear amongst those who might possibly dare think about defying the Roman authority. If there was some reason to hasten their death, the soldiers would smash the legs of the victim with an iron club, which would prevent the victim from being able to push up with his legs to catch a breath. And so the, 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 the strength in the arms would would soon be insufficient and suffocation would soon happen. That is typically the way people died when they were crucified. They suffocated. And breaking their legs would expedite that. And so the Jewish leaders, and, this, and we've, we've noted this, uh, I think Frank maybe noted this a few weeks ago. I know Jason has noted this as we've been studying these verses. But just the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders here. 
concerned that they were about their observance of the Passover according to the sacred law. And there was a law written in Deuteronomy chapter 21 that a hanged man should not stay there overnight. So meticulously concerned they were for God's law, even as they murdered the one whom the law bore witness to. What hypocrisy in these leaders. Well, they didn't want the land to be defiled, according to Scripture. So they wanted the death of Jesus expedited so they could get him off the cross and not defile the land, as Deuteronomy 21 mentioned. And so they asked Pilate to have the legs of the dead men, uh, of the men broken, so that they could be taken away before the high day began. And so we're told there in the passage of the soldiers smashing the legs of the two criminals. But when they came to Jesus, verse 33 tells us, they saw that he was already dead and they did not break his legs. Rather, to confirm that he was in fact dead, right, that he hadn't just passed out, a soldier pierced his side with a spear, which produced a mix of blood and water pouring out, we're told there in verse 34. Now, a lot has been written about the medical reality there of the blood and water uh, that are pouring out, but that's not where John, I'm not here to give you medical advice on how that all happened. John sees something very weighty here. He sees something very significant because look at the way he just pauses. He kind of interrupts the flow of his recounting the narrative and he appeals right there in the middle of his chronicling this event. He appeals for the faith of those who are reading his his book, who are hearing his message, right? Look at verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. So this kind of seems like a big deal to John, that that Jesus's bones were not broken, but instead his side was pierced with a spear. Why would he be so concerned about that? Why would that be so important that he would at that moment pause and say, I was there. I saw this with my own eyes. Believe in this one. Well, he tells us there in verse 36, because it was because these things were happening in fulfillment of the scriptures. Even in this nauseatingly hypocritical act of the Jewish leaders, God was working to bring about the fulfillment of scripture about how the body of the Messiah would be pierced. Matt read the verses earlier from Zechariah 12. And the book of Zechariah is a hard book to read. It speaks of of prophetic, they're they're words of uh, uh, exhortation to repentance and renewal of God's covenant. They're filled with words of hope about the grace that God would yet provide his people. And in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, again, it's printed there in your bulletin. Matt read it earlier. We're told, and it's important that you understand in these verses that the one speaking When it says in Zechariah 12, and I will pour out, I is Yahweh, I is the Lord, God himself. And what we're told there in Zechariah 12 is, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, who's the me? They say, were you, no, 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 I just... I just read it. I mean, it is. I know you're, you're, too, you're smarter than I mean you to be right now. Who, what did I just tell you? Who's speaking in Zechariah 12.10? Yahweh. 
Yahweh, God, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. What it's talking about there, this is why I'm saying you were too, you were, a little, you were just a step ahead of me, that's good. But how could Yahweh, how could the Lord be pierced? And y'all answered with the good church answer, which was Jesus. In Jesus of Nazareth, God became a man in order to die at the hands of men. This is why Jesus' side was pierced with a spear that the scriptures might be fulfilled. In Christ, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, the one who is eternally with God and was God, the one who became flesh to dwell, to dwell among us so that we might see his glory. Jesus became incarnate. He took on flesh and blood so that as the God-man, the Lord Jesus might be pierced for our transgressions. I wonder if you realize walking in here this morning that transgression is, is your biggest problem. I haven't been thinking about that the last few days. I've got a problem I'm thinking about, and it's not my transgression. But you know, the biggest problem that I have in the world, and the biggest problem that you have in the world, and that every person has in the world, is their sin, their transgression. That's what I, Transgression is a fancy way for saying sin. Transgression is an affront, it is an insult against the majesty and the glory of God and it alienates us from him, making us justly objects of his righteous indignation and wrath. That's why I say transgression is our biggest problem because sin, transgression, takes away all hope of a happy eternity, instead subjecting us to a future of condemnation, which we, in and of ourselves, can do nothing to escape. But as the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans chapter 5, God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that in him, in Christ, through faith in the Lord Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. In the person of his son, God himself was pierced. God suffered the curse and the penalty that was due to sinners for our rebellion against him so that all who believe in him can be forgiven and washed and made clean through the blood of Calvary's lamb. Kids. Kids, I wonder if you've ever heard mom or dad, when you came in from a long day of playing outside maybe, and they saw you and they're like, oh, you are filthy. You are so dirty. This is, you're disgusting. Go get a shower or a bath, maybe. I, I see some kids nodding. You know what the... Sin, I wish that's a kind of a little funny thing, but I want you to understand, kids, that sin makes you dirty and disgusting like that before God. God is good. God is holy. He can't deal with the gross disgustingness of sin. He can't allow that into his presence. But kids, 
Because of Jesus and what he's done for us, God has made a way for the dirt and the grossness of sin to be washed away so that we could be brought into God's family. And all we have to do, kids, there's nothing we actually can do. We can't fix that sin problem. We can't wash ourselves. But Jesus came and he died so that we could be washed from our sin and be brought into his family. If you want to Learn more about what that means, kids. Talk to mom or dad, or you could talk to me after the service. I'd love to talk more with you about that myself. I won't yell the way I often do up here. I'll talk to you very nicely and quietly like this. In the piercing of our Lord Jesus, a fountain of mercy, of cleansing, of forgiveness and peace was opened for every hell-deserving sinner who would repent and believe in him, for all who would weep and mourn in humble contrition for sin and broken-hearted repentance from sin. And so we're told there at the end of Zechariah, if, we're, if, if that, those verses in Zechariah 12 are a bit cryptic and we're not sure what it all means, we get chapter 13, verse 1, on that day... And Matt read this to us earlier in the service. On that day, that day when God himself was pierced, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And Gentiles, you do not need to be concerned because there is sufficient water, there is sufficient fountain here in this fountain to cleanse not just the Jews, but sinners from every tribe and tongue and nation and language who would cast themselves upon Jesus. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. If you're here this morning with us and you've not put your faith in Christ, if you're visiting with us today, we're delighted that you're here. I don't know if you've under, how much of what I've just said you've understood, and I told you the book of Zechariah is obscure, but if you're here this morning and you've not put your faith in Christ, I would urge you today today to turn from your sin in your resistance to Jesus you're every bit as ugly and offensive to him as these Pharisees are as these religious leaders are who are murdering the son of God while they're all concerned about following the law of Deuteronomy chapter 21 sin brings death and Jesus has come to give his life as an atoning sacrifice if you would lay down your rebellion, if you would turn from your sin, if you would turn from trying to live as your own ruler and master and Lord and turn to this one, he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness and bring you into his heavenly kingdom forever. And brothers and sisters, we have strong confidence in this redeemer and in the sufficiency of his once-for-all sacrifice because his bones were not broken. That's another promise in here, right? That was fulfilled. His bones were not broken. I wonder how much hope and comfort and strength you have drawn in the past week from the fact that Jesus' bones were not broken. Probably not a lot. I'm guessing not a lot. But we should. When John says that Jesus' bones were not broken so that the scripture might be fulfilled, it seems as though there are two 
specific passages of scripture he has in mind which are converging at this one moment. One of them is in Exodus 12 of the Passover lamb, right? Some 1,500 years before Jesus, who was the lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. Before that, in his instructions about the Exodus and the Passover meal and how the Jews were to commemorate it, we're told in Exodus 12, 46, it shall be eaten in, it, it shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. So the Passover lamb was not to have its bones broken, and now Christ, the Passover lamb, does not have his bones broken. But I, I, I was thinking about this. I said, why would that even be significant? Right? It, it would not have interfered with the Jews' ability to eat that ancient meal if the bones had been broken. So I, I was trying to understand, what is the big deal about bones? And I just did a little study of bones, and the scriptures are just so rich. You just learn, I've been reading the Bible a lot for 22 years, and I just learned some new things this week about bones. I'm just going to give you a little bit, don't worry. But this is really meant for your encouragement. This, this compels John to say, I saw it. His bones weren't broken. Believe in him. It's meant to strengthen your faith or awaken faith in you if you've not put your faith in Christ. The, the, the first real, well, let's just say it this way. The most prominent bones in the Bible, before we get to Jesus, are the bones of Joseph. You remember Joseph back in the book of Genesis and before God's people had become slaves in Egypt, Joseph, who was in Egypt, was anticipating his death in Egypt, and he made the sons of Israel swear that they would bring up his bones from Egypt to the promised land once God had finally delivered them. And what we read about in Exodus is that under Moses' leadership, that promise was fulfilled. In Exodus 13, 19, we are told that the people of Israel, as they made their journey from Egypt, they brought the bones of Joseph with them. And then when the Jews finally get into the promised land and all the promised land is divided in, in the book of Joshua, at the very end, the second to last verse in the book of Joshua, we're told they brought the bones of Joseph into the promised land and they buried them in the, in the plot that Jacob had, had gotten for himself. And then the book of Hebrews in the New Testament celebrates this concern that Joseph had for his bones as a great act of faith. Hebrews 11.22, by faith Joseph at the end of his life made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. What's all the big deal about bones? Well, I think we get a pointer in another passage about bones. I think this is the other one that John has in mind when he talks about the fulfillment of scripture. We read it earlier in the service in Psalm 34. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. You see, God's keeping the bones in Psalm 34 is a promise of resurrection. The Lord will deliver. That's what it says in Psalm 34. The Lord will deliver his righteous people out of all their afflictions. Not sparing them from affliction, but delivering them from it. They would endure affliction, including the affliction of death, but he would deliver his righteous ones out of all their afflictions. Now, how do you get delivered from the affliction of death? You get raised up again 
to new life. That's how you get delivered from death. You rise from the grave so that death is not finally overcoming you. And so God keeps the bones of his people, we're told, in Psalm 34. He keeps them in death in order to restore them to new life. Affliction, even if it kills him, will not defeat the righteous man or woman in the end. And so it seems to be that the reason Joseph cared about his bones so much is that he believed that God would raise him bodily back to life one day. He did not believe that his death would be an impediment in him receiving the promises that God had made to him about the promised land. And the reason God instructed his people not to break the bones of the Passover lamb is that one day God would raise the true Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, back to life after he had given himself to be slaughtered for his people. And so John, recounting this, when John writes the Gospel of John, we're some maybe 40, 50 years after the event of Jesus' death. And John, just writing it down, thinking about the bones and the promise that was fulfilled on the third day of Jesus rising from the, get, from the dead, John just stops himself and says, I was there. I saw this extraordinary glimmer of hope that even while Jesus' lifeless body was hanging accursed on the tree, his bones were not broken. They did not break his legs. It's just like Joseph. It's just like the Passover lamb. It's just like the righteous sufferer in Psalm 34. The soldier has the iron club ready, and he, he pauses, and, and he sees that Jesus is dead already. No need to break his bones. And so the one with a spear comes, and just to confirm that he's dead, he's pierced with a side, but the bones of Christ remain unbroken, intact, kept in the providential care of the Father who will put them back together and raise him again. God is watching over this righteous man, the Lord Jesus, and the death he did not deserve. And God kept his bones, and he would raise him from the dead, and in Christ he will raise all his people from the dead. And that's good news, beloved. As God's people... We make, if you're wondering, this has not been a very practical sermon, Larry. Could you give me some practical application? Well, we are talking about the death of Jesus. And I do think that it's practical to just consider that Jesus died. But I will give you a practical word. Maybe it's practical. I think it's practical. As God's people, we make no pretense to being immune to fears or troubles or afflictions and even death. Right, Psalm 34, 19 says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. We endure afflictions. It just may be a helpful thing for you to do even after the service as you're having some fellowship with each other or maybe this week in a, in a life group or whenever you would gather together to just talk about what, is that, what are those afflictions that are weighing you down and troubling you right now? Because I know you bring them in here. Might as well just talk about that. But even in the most trying of times, even in that hour of death itself, God keeps hope alive. In Christ, he promises resurrection on the other side. He will deliver his people. 
And if we, if we knew that, if we believed that, if we understood what a rousing rescue we have coming, how strengthened our souls would be as we bear up under those light and momentary afflictions which are preparing for God's people in resurrection glory, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Do not lose heart in the midst of your afflictions, brothers and sisters. Jesus' bones were not broken. And that, that conviction, that confidence, is meant to awaken a certain kind of response in the disciples of Jesus. That's right, I have a second point. It will be briefer. Jesus' death was a fulfilling death. And because it was a fulfilling death, it is a death that demands a response. I think that's what we see at the end of the passage. Particularly as we're told here about Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus at the end. Right After these things, look at verse 38 again. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And the verses go on again, and they tell us about the preparations that were made for Jesus' body to be buried. But, but what stands out to me, and I do believe that John intends us to see this, because he specifically calls attention to the fact that Joseph was a disciple, but what? Secretly. And what does he tell us about Nicodemus? He was that one, you remember Nicodemus. We preached about him back in like, you know, 2018 or whatever. But you know the story of Nicodemus. When did he come? By night. Why did he come at night? This, he, he was afraid. He didn't want anybody to know. He, 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 wanted, he was kind of uh, trying to be secretive, right? He didn't want the others to know that he was inquiring about Jesus. He was scared. So we got two timid kind of followers of Jesus. I say kind of because uh, John has already been clear that there were some who were believing in Jesus, but they weren't uh, confessing him because they were afraid of the Jews because they loved the glory of man more than they loved the glory of God. That's pretty serious. But now that's changed, you see. And these two timid, in the shadows, kind of believing in Jesus, but it seemed like they were on the fence a little bit they come forward and they go public at a time of vulnerability. Jesus has just been executed as, a, as an enemy of the Roman Empire. And now, though he can do nothing for them, right? He's dead. Though all of his disciples, have a, his apostles, they've all abandoned him at this point. Joseph and Nicodemus, they come. They will honor this man. And, and it's a big risk that they do. Who knew what reprisal might come from Pilate from ident for identifying themselves with Jesus or from the, the Pharisees? But the suffering and death of Jesus demanded a response. And these two men could no longer remain secretive or quiet in their commitment to him. Uh, one old commentator said, whereunto do I ascribe this? What, how could it be that these two would come out of the shadows at this time to identify publicly with Jesus? He says, I ascribe it to the force that comes from the death of Christ. There was never a living man in the world that had such power as that dead body had. 
And that's what I want to leave you with today. As we have considered the crucified Jesus, this one who gave himself for us according to the scriptures. The death of Jesus demands a response. Dear saints, in the world we will have tribulation. You will have tribulation. And some of that tribulation will arise as you side with Jesus in a world that is increasingly at war with him and his word and his people. How easy it is in the midst of the mocking and the reviling and the slander of this world, how easy it is, how tempting it is to cower in fear the way Joseph had, the way Nicodemus had, to prefer our comfort and our ease rather than suffering with Jesus outside the camp and bearing reproach with him. Jesus even warns us that some would see this. Some would see this increasing intensity of hatred towards God and shrink back. Remember what Jesus warned? Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Do you lament the increasing lawlessness in our culture? Every time you do, beg God that your heart would not grow cold towards the Lord and that God's people's hearts would not grow cold to him. Far more burdened ought we to be for the warm affections of God's people for him than the lawlessness that is in our culture. I'm not saying you have to pick and choose. I'm saying we lament what's going on out there. We need to be vigilant about what's going on in our own hearts, dear ones. Jesus said the one who endures to the end will be saved. One man who took these things to heart was a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So I've been talking about next, this coming Friday, Good Friday, but this past Friday, April 8th, 1945, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was killed because of his efforts to do away with the Nazis and their war in Germany. Dietrich Bonhoeffer had written, a life with Jesus Christ and his church is worth staking everything on. And on April 8th, 1945, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hanged for that belief. You may not be called to die like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but you are called to follow Jesus when it's hard. So, in the midst of the trials, in the midst of the scorn, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. J.C. Ryle in his commentary, I'm going to close with this quote. I'm done. But don't tune out. Like, listen, I'm just telling you I'm done, but listen to the last quote, please. J.C. Ryle writes of this passage, Thus ended the most wonderful funeral the sun ever had shown upon. Such a death and such a burial, so little understood by man and so important in the sight of God, there never was and never can be again. Who need doubt the love of Christ when we consider the deep humiliation that Christ went through for our sakes? To tabernacle in our flesh at all, to die after the manner of a man, to allow his holy body to hang naked on a cross, to suffer it to be lifted, handled, 
carried like a lump of cold clay and shut up in a dark, silent, solitary tomb. This was indeed love that passes knowledge. Brothers and sisters, let us look to this love and let us suffer with him and even die with him that we might one day be raised with him. Love you, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we, we long to be pure and faithful in your sight. We thank you for the fulfillment of Scripture in the death of Jesus. We thank you that he paid it all and that we therefore owe all to him. Not that we can pay you back for our salvation, but we long to give you what you are due from our lives. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Father, would you help us to give our all in worship, in faithful service to you. Surely you are worthy of it. And so we pray that you would be pleased to work in us what's pleasing in your sight through Jesus and for your eternal glory. Amen.